Father God, please speak to us this evening. Lord, I pray by your spirit you'd be at work in our hearts. Convict us of the things that we need to hear. And Lord, I pray above all that we would see your son clearly uh, in today's passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had those moments where you thought to yourself, if I were God, I'd do things this way, or perhaps I'd do things that way. You know, maybe I'd click my fingers and everyone in the hospitals would suddenly be healed. Wouldn't that be a great thing? You know, maybe over here I'd, I'd click my fingers and all of crime would just drop to zero. You know, maybe over there I'd click my fingers and McDonald's chips would always be crispy and they wouldn't make you fat. So it can be hard to, to get answers as to why the world isn't exactly the way that we would want it, the way that we think it should be, uh, given what we know of the character of God. And this has been uh, the subject of many atheists who have relentlessly mocked Christians in the past with the age-old problem that suggests that God is either loving but not powerful enough to stop evil in the world or is all-powerful but not loving enough as a checkmate to the God that we profess to believe. But as we'll soon see, God is always good and God is always faithful even if we do live in a world where things don't go according to plan, where we live in a world that is filled with evil and pain. And so this is where uh, we're heading today as we look to Esther chapters 5 to 7, and we're going to start at point one, our times are in God's hands. Now, last week we left on a bit of a cliffhanger of a finish. Right, We saw the bad guy Haman, uh, also labelled the enemy of the Jews back in 310, He'd set in motion an irreversible edict in the name of King Xerxes, an edict to annihilate all of the Jews, men, women, and children, all on a specific date. Now, this is terrible news for the people of God, and as Mordecai and Esther stare down the certainty of their death, uh, Esther was left with an extremely difficult choice to make. You see, the edict can't be taken back. That's a given. Uh, the decree is permanent. It is set in stone. And so all of the pessimists, if I was in that room with them, I'd be thinking, well, why bother doing anything? You know, evil has won. We're cooked. We're done. It's all just, it's all too late. But Mordecai, on the other hand, he knows God is bigger than the situation, even if he can't quite see how things are going to work out. But he is cautiously optimistic that deliverance will arise, even if not in the time and place that he expects. But he does something else. He also reasons that perhaps God has put Esther in her place of royalty for such a time as this. You know, maybe this is why you were born, Esther. Maybe this is why God has you placed where he does. There's almost a a sense of destiny in the way that Mordecai speaks here. Except unlike the idea of destiny that you get uh, in the world that comes from abstract spiritualism, uh, where we think the universe or some kind of theoretical force is guiding us, this here, what we see in Esther, is the unseen hand of God hard at work. And so as last week's passage comes to a close, Esther calls for a period of fasting for three days. And although there's no mention of prayer anywhere in this book, you can bet your bottom dollar there would have been plenty of that happening during this fast as well. And after all of this, uh, she sets her face like flint and resolves to approach the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. 
Now, I bring all this up, this recap of the end of last week's sermon, because I want us to remember the main point of last week. That is, when God seems distant. Because it relates very strongly to this week's, that is, trusting in God's timing. You see, very often when we feel that God is distant from us, it's often related to his timing. It's got to do with the fact that his timing is not quite what we would expect. It's different to the way that, that we perhaps would do things if we were God. And this can make things tricky for us, especially when we can't see any rational reason for God not to act on certain things straight away. And what's worse is if you go down this rabbit hole too far, it can very quickly turn into a challenge of God's character. See, if God is good, if he is all-powerful, then why does he allow certain things to happen? Why wouldn't he stop that thing over there from happening or this thing happening to me right now? But in asking these questions, to a certain extent, you've assumed the mind of God. Right? When you say these things, you've put yourself in his place, when the reality is that you are merely human. You can't see behind the veil. There are some things that, that happen in your life that will only be understood by you later on in life, if at all. Which means there is a certain level of trust on occasion that we simply have to have on the basis of the promises we have in the scriptures. And these things we need to trust, especially as things start turning pear-shaped in our lives. Now, I bring this up because as we approach the text, it's very, very easy to slip into moralizing the text of Esther, right? into a book that, that teaches us <clears throat> if we simply have enough faith, simply have enough trust, then God will work things out in our favor. That, that you know, God will do what we want as long as we do what he wants, you know, he'll heal me of this disease, or he'll definitely get me that job, or he'll find me that perfect spouse. But if we look to Esther's words at the end of chapter 4, it's easy to see that she certainly didn't have this same level of confidence. Because she says, as she thinks about approaching the king, if I perish, I perish. She didn't have the confidence that she would come out unscathed or even alive no matter how much she fasted over those three days. Now, we'll pick up uh, some more of this idea towards the end of the talk. Uh, but for now, as we, talk, uh, as we explore today's passage, uh, this is just a warning not to make the mistake of moralizing the passage, right? thinking that our level, the level of our strength uh, of our faith or the strength of Mordecai or Esther's faith correlates to their favor from God in the passage. Now, as we launch into chapter 5, uh, amazingly, the first verse uh, we see after these days of fasting and this cliffhanger uh, as Esther thinks about her death, uh, Esther's resolve is just as strong as it was in 4.16. So we're told in verse 1 that she goes to the wardrobe, she puts on her royal robes, and she approaches the king. And now before too much tension is built, the very first verse, you see that the king holds out the golden scepter, right? She is free to approach him without fear of death. So there's the first kind of hurdle overcome. In fact, the king, he's so happy to see Esther that he offers her even up to half of his kingdom. Now, that's a pretty generous offer, especially if you consider the size of his kingdom as described in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, Esther, shrewdly, she plays her cards close to her chest at this point. 
Instead of falling at his feet and begging for him to do something to revert the decree, uh, the decree that Haman had put in, the enemy of the Jews, she instead invites Xerxes to a banquet. And if there's one thing that this king can't resist, it's a party with an open bar. But not only this, Esther shrewdly invites Haman as well, the very man who wanted to kill her and her entire race. It seems a bit like the proverb from the art of war, the the famous one that says, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And Esther certainly is doing that here. Now, Haman, he's over the moon with this offer, and they eat and they drink and they have a good time. And after all of this, the king asks Esther again. He says, what do you want? Offering even up to half of his kingdom. But again, Esther demonstrates this amazing amount of composure and restraint, holding her tongue about the real issue that's burning on her heart. And instead, she plays the long game and invites them all to a second banquet the following day. Now, Haman, he is absolutely thrilled with this once again. You can almost picture him doing one of those little leprechaun jumps, you know, they jump and click their heels together as he waltz on home. But the the sad thing is that he could have been offered the entire world or even half of the kingdom, I guess, and it still wouldn't matter to him so long as he saw Mordecai sitting around at the king's gate refusing to honour him. Haman was a deeply insecure and prideful individual. Now, amazingly, if you read in verse 10, we're told that Haman controls himself. So presumably he could have done something to make Mordecai's life more difficult, but he doesn't. He doesn't do anything rash. Instead, he goes home and then he brags to his wife and his friends about the riches and the privileges he's got, all the sons that he's had, all the good things he's been afforded in life, including this second invitation to eat with the king and queen themselves. But, Haman says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. Now, if you remember from last week, these two, they represent uh, Israel and Israel's enemies. So when you see them sort of sparring out and having this this hatred from Haman towards Mordecai, there's something more going on in the background there. Uh, They'll never really be comfortable with one another. Now, the solution that uh, Haman's wife and his friends suggest in dealing with Mordecai is to build a giant stake. Uh, literally, in the text, it's a tree. And this tree is to be set 50 cubits high, which is, uh, in our terms, about 23 metres up in the air. And they want to have Mordecai stuck on this thing the next day. That seems a little bit over the top, but that's Haman for you. He is a man of extremes. Uh, In fact, what's more uh, is these guys, his friends and the people that go to build it, they're speedier than your local NBN guys because they get to work as soon as the ticket, the order is put in. Now, if you're reading this same text in your own Bibles, uh, as a quick side note, some of yours will be describing this stake as gallows. Uh, And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word gallows, it conjures up pictures of uh, the hangman's noose that you see in kind of the 18th, 19th centuries. It's more likely, though, here, this hanging of Mordecai was a bit grislier, as the NIV implies, more of a a skewering. At any rate, what's certain is that Mordecai 
will soon be on a date with death in a few short hours. And this brings us to point two. So our times are in God's hands, but we can trust in his timing. So as we move on, chapter six, it opens with the the king, he's struggling to get some shut eye. Now, occasionally I have uh, restless nights myself, and the remedy I usually turn to, funnily enough, is 612 ABC Brisbane. I like the random sounds of uh, talkback radio, uh, the talk of the neighbours talking about their, the annoying frangipani that always leaves stuff on their driveway, or old Mary who found a bargain for iceberg lettuce in the local farmer's markets. These are the things that lull me off to sleep very effectively. Now, King Xerxes, he doesn't switch on his radio. Instead, he has his servants read him a bedtime story. But this isn't just any bedtime story. This is the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign. Basically, this is his autobiography. That's his bedtime reading. Just when he thought he couldn't get any more self-absorbed, this is what lulls him off to sleep. I don't know what that says about his record, but make of it what you will. Now, his servants, they're reading this book, and in verses 2 and 3, they get to the part about Mordecai saving the king's life back in chapter 2. And the king realizes, like a light bulb, he goes, nothing has been done to honor Mordecai. Nothing's been done to reward him. And so, as usual, Xerxes, he doesn't have any idea of how to think for himself, and so he asks for someone to help brainstorm how Mordecai can be rewarded in verse 4. And he asks, who is in the king's court? And would you know it, at that very moment, Haman had just arrived to request the impaling of Mordecai on the giant stake that had just been set up. Now, this is a really tense situation, except for the fact that both sides are ignorant to what the other side is thinking. And so in this, we we see God's providence at work, not only keeping the king from falling asleep, Uh, In his providence, uh, the king's guided to read from his own autobiography. Uh, In his providence, uh, God led Haman to the king's courtyard at the exact moment that Xerxes needed him. And in another act of God's providence, the king speaks first, right before Haman requests Mordecai's execution. And he asks Haman this. He says in verse 6, What should be done? For the man the king delights to honour. Now this question at least uh, temporarily short circuits Haman's big brain because he drops any idea about staking Mordecai and we're told that he responds by thinking to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? (laughs) He's got to be talking about me. This guy is unbelievably self-absorbed, stuck in an echo chamber of his own arrogance. But in God's providence, once again, just when you thought this misunderstanding couldn't get any worse, Haman proceeds to list off all the things that the king should do for the man he delights to honour. Read with me from verse 7. So Haman answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, let's see, have him uh, bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the, let the robes and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let this prince robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, 
This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. What a list of things. It's quite a, quite a catalogue of things that Haman has in mind that he assumed would be his lot in life shortly. And amazingly, the king thinks this is a fairly reasonable request because he accepts this request from Haman. And then he says, fantastic, go at once, get the robe and horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Right when you thought... Uh, This couldn't get any sweeter for someone who loves justice. Uh, By God's providence, he adds this one last thing. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. Oh, dear. This is one of those hashtag instant regret situations. Getting with my young audience down the front here. It's a thing. Well, you go ahead, right? Hashtag instant regret is basically where you do something and you immediately regret it. You realise you've done something stupid and it's fallen on your head. Thinking, oops, that was a big mistake. But worse than this is for Haman is that there's no chance now, no chance at all, that he'll get his request to have Mordecai killed in the morning granted, especially as the king has just read about Mordecai's heroic actions in saving his life. This is a humiliating turnaround for Haman. It's a series of unfortunate events. And if we're looking for God's providential hand in action, as you can see, it's all beginning to come to a head here. But it's not over yet. Uh, Haman, he does all the things that uh, he had requested, that the king had then requested him to do, and understandably, he runs home covering his head, presumably in shame. And I can't help but picture uh, Tracy Grimshaw from A Current Affair here chasing him through the streets as he's got his head covered, thinking, Mr. Agag, Mr. Agag, how do you feel that Mordecai the Jew, your mortal enemy, has been honoured in such a glorious way? How do you feel about having plotted his death only for him to ride around on one of the king's horses while you say really nice things about him? You know, this is probably one of the most humiliating times of his entire life. But doesn't finish there, it only gets worse as we keep reading, because when he gets to the safety and security of his own home, we all know this is no place like home when you walk in the front door, his own wife then proceeds to predict his downfall in 6.13. So she's not even really supportive of him anymore. And only then, mid-sentence, after she gives him this kind of really unsupportive wifely thing, he's then whisked away to the second banquet prepared for by Esther. And this ends up being the nail in the coffin for him because at this banquet, Esther reveals the truth. In chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, the king, he asks Esther what is on her heart and this is what she says. She says, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I, my people, have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. My people are about to be annihilated. Save us, effectively, is her request. Now, this news, it disturbs the king. 
And so he rightly asks, who has dared to do such a thing? We all know who it is. You can see Haman probably sitting in the corner of this banquet, sweating bullets at this point, knowing what's about to happen. And the queen responds, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Now the king, he is rightly enraged by this news. Uh, He's so angry that he leaves the room and goes to the gardens to cool his head. And in one last providential act, uh, this is my favorite in the whole book, as the king wanders through the garden trying to clear his head, Haman falls to his knees in front of Esther to beg for his life. And in this plea for his life, it ironically ends up costing it. Because the king comes in just as he falls to his knees in front of Queen Esther and the king misinterprets this as an advance on his beautiful queen. And this seals his fate. And Haman is impaled on the very pole he had built for Mordecai in one of the most ironic reversals in the entire book. Now, the story of God's providence in Esther, it's not over yet. Uh, This isn't finished. Yes, the enemy has been killed, but there's still the problem of the irreversible edict, and we'll get to that one next week. But for now, what we're going to do is explore this this knife-edge timing in today's passage and contemplate three ways uh, we can read this that can teach us how to trust God better. Three ways we can remember to trust God. Now, as we touched on in the, in the opening of this sermon, we need to be careful not to interpret Esther as a handbook on what God will do for us if we just have enough faith. You know, if we just trust in him enough and in his timing, uh, all things will work out for our good. Uh, and that's why it's worth highlighting that for Esther, even after three days of fasting and presumably prayer, she wasn't sure whether she'd be sentenced to death or not for approaching the king. And so we want to avoid the trap of assuming the application here is to then mimic the faith uh, that Mordecai and Esther had uh, in God, thinking that everything will be okay for us as it was for her. Because to put it bluntly, uh, she didn't have any clue how this would turn out. She had no idea whether she would live or die as she approached the king. But that being said, there are things uh, that we can learn from this passage uh, which should fuel our faith. Things we can learn, uh, even when everything starts turning pear-shaped in our lives, uh, some ways at how we can remember to trust God, knowing that his timing is always perfect. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, while we may not know every reason uh, that we suffer and struggle, in fact, we may not know some of the reasons that God delivers us from some struggles. Sometimes these things are just mysteries. But we do know that God's timing is never an accident. It's always perfect. That is, God is never late to the party, as we might think he is. And today's passage is a great example of this, where Mordecai is seconds from being thrown under the bus by Haman, but God steps in in multiple ways, which ends up elevating Mordecai and being the end of Haman. And when we're waiting Uh, until the last minute in our helplessness, if we think of situations in our own lives where we just think it's utterly hopeless, then who gets all the praise and the glory if things do turn out well? 
Who actually gets glorified when we are delivered from things by God's providence? A great example of this as well, where people's faith was stretched to the limit, is in the story of Lazarus in John 11. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is terminally ill, and we find out that God's timing is a bit weird in this one. Because when Jesus hears about Lazarus' sickness, he does something very strange, something that any humanly, any human would think is, is reckless or even heartless. He just does nothing. He stops, and he waits two days, and Lazarus dies. Now, everyone in John 11, they're shocked and they're confused. But in this story, it's God's timing that is the catalyst which stretched the faith of many. Because they had no choice in this situation, as we don't on many situations. They had no choice but to wait and trust that Jesus could do something, anything. And after Lazarus dies, uh, you'll realize they, they think it's too late. Jesus, he's, he's the great healer, but they didn't know he could raise anyone from the dead at this point. And that's when Jesus shares these uh, remarkable words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. When all seemed lost, right? remember at this point, they didn't know Jesus could raise anyone from the dead, so they didn't see this coming. But through this event, and through Esther's 5 to 7 as well, we can see that in these moments of utter helplessness, when we can't do anything to help our own situation, once again, who gets the praise and the glory? God's timing is always perfect. Now, the second thing to remember is that our ways are not God's ways. So like last week, when we find ourselves asking, where was God when we needed him most? The answer was one which recalibrated our thinking. It turned our attention heavenward. It turned our attention towards God and what he was doing. We're forced inevitably to see things from an eternal perspective, which both rebukes us and encourages us because it clears the way forward like, like a floodlight shining down a dark alley. You see, when we, when we realize that God's ways are eternal ways, uh, this is the very thing that teaches us about God's timing. Because if his ways are eternal, then it's our eternal welfare that is very much in the mind of God when he deals with us. And so whenever we're tempted to accuse God of having poor timing or to suggest that perhaps he doesn't know what he's doing... Uh, as many Jews may have been thinking in Esther's day, uh, when the edicts demanding their destruction was floating about to every corner of the empire, outlining in grisly detail uh, their fate, we need to remember that in these dire situations, God's perspective is eternal. In fact, the reality is that, that in the blink of an eye, all of this will be over. You will wilt like a flower, and so will I, and very quickly we will all face the judgment of God. And when this happens, all of your worries about what God was doing way back then, why he didn't intervene in this or that situation, this will fade to nothing as we front up to a fierce and loving God 
who has clothed us in the righteousness of his son's blood, as we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our understanding of the end times, this is very important, it actually shapes the way we live in the here and now. And so the second thing we need to be reminded of is that our ways are not God's ways. And this leads us to the third way we can remember to trust God. The last one is to remember that God always has the final say. Now, we saw this with those ironic reversals happening back to back in the story. You know, you saw them bang, 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 one after the other. Uh, this showing the providential timing and faithfulness of God in this story. But as things got extraordinarily dire, as things sat on a knife edge, when things seemed utterly hopeless, God always had the final say. Now, ultimately, we know he has the final say. But when, when we look to Jesus' crucifixion, right? if you consider his closest followers on that day, consider the Roman leaders on that day, and consider maybe even Satan on that day, having put a full stop in the story of God. He's lost. He's been overthrown. It was over. It's time to go home. And yet, where we had put a full stop, God had, in fact, put a comma. Because the story wasn't over yet. You see, we had this ironic reversal of Mordecai going to the stake, and then it ended up being his enemy, Haman, who had set up the stake. Well, in the most ironic reversal of history, with great power and majesty, God raised Jesus from hanging on the stake, hanging on the tree. He raised Jesus from the dead, triumphant over the grave and over all the powers of darkness. And as a result, by God's incomprehensible grace, we, his people, uh, are now, according to Romans 8.37, considered more than conquerors. Right? We overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who loved us. And if you know the end of Romans 8, it's one of my favorite passages. This is how Paul finishes it. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God always has the final say, just as he did in Esther and just as he has done ultimately in the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to trust in your timing. Help us to have confidence uh, that you are in control of all creation and help us to have a confidence that goes beyond this life into the eternal and let that shape us. Well, thank you that when all had seemed lost for the people of God, both in Esther and ultimately on the cross, you had the final say. And Lord, I pray that all of these truths would fuel our faith and strengthen us this week. And Lord, please do this by the power of your spirit. Help us to press on in faith this week, whatever you have in store for us. Amen.